in the first iteration of the recording, A is the verse, B is the chorus, C is the bridge, D is the outro. And then the next version, song two, they slide up in order. So then uh, B is the verse, C is the chorus, and so on and so on. And so what happens is you hear the parts because of the amount of times they repeat kind of based on that structure. The parts kind of gain different uh, prominence and different kind of contextual power. When the chorus becomes a verse, it changes. And certainly when the bridge, which is only meant to be done once, becomes the most repeated part as the verse or the chorus, you know, it really changes character through that repetition and that kind of move. And people kind of got that sense hearing it after like a minute into the second composition. They go, oh, I'm, I'm, I see things have moved around. And that's essentially all that was happening in the visual components was that they were moving the pieces around to make different arrangements out of the same elements. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 220th episode, I'm excited to have Nick Satinover back on the podcast. We talk all about his new work, which continues to explore a variety of printmaking and drawing and painting techniques. We talk a little bit about the influence of music, which he's been interested in recording and producing since he was 10, and how that finally found its way into some of the more recent series. That's also where today's intro music comes from. It's part of Nick's Four Songs, Four Tracks. So very cool to have that. We'll play it again later at the end. We'll talk a bit about his upcoming exhibition at Rocka Gallery next month, which opens April 18th. And the title is Time is a Distance. So we're very much looking forward to talking about that. Of course, Brian Frank was our juror back in 2018 and picked Nick's work for a solo exhibition up at Rocka Gallery in Mankato. So we're very excited to have this come to fruition. Be sure and check out his work at nicksatinover.com if you want to follow along while we're talking about it. If you are new to Studio Break, please check out all of the episodes of Studio Break available on studiobreak.com. You can see we've got a big archive. Each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork as well as links to their websites. You can list right there in the default player or just click those links. You can subscribe in iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. So check us out there as well and subscribe. You can also follow us on a variety of social media platforms. So be sure and like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break. And, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break to stay up to date with all the new podcasts and see some new work of guests coming up. And, of course, it's always great to hear from new listeners and people that enjoy the podcast. So be sure and say hello there. And with that, we're going to jump right into this interview with Nick Satinover. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Studio Break. Nick Satinover, how are you doing this morning? Doing well, Dave. How are you? Excellent, excellent. You know, we were just reminiscing. I interviewed a long time ago in 2012 and then with Christopher Holmgren in 2016. So we've had a little bit of a history, but, you know, like we were talking, we might kind of revisit some of those earlier stages just to kind of get an idea of what you're doing now because you're exploring all sorts of color and mixed media pieces, lots of print, obviously. And then, you know, I'm really interested in the audio aspect. So it should be kind of fun to to catch up on all the, the projects and, and good stuff. And yeah. uh, as a special note, I've, I've been kind of caffeine free this month. So I, I just caffeined up. So we'll see if my, <laughs> my energy level shoots through the roof. Um, I've been yeah. drinking roasted chicory root, Oh wow! which is huh. uh, 
not as good as coffee, I don't think so. <laughs> well, you could get the chicory blend coffee, right? And do kind of a little split. Yeah, yeah. I it might be it might be on the list. <laughs> yeah. But I might go back to to full octane so I can really ramp it up with energy. Yeah. Not everybody's gonna know, you know, some of your background. So you allude to uh growing up in the Rust Belt. Where where did you grow up? And you know, we can kinda talk about other things from there. Sure. So I grew up uh just outside of Dayton, Ohio. I can't claim that I grew up within a first ring suburb and Dave, I know you think about that sort of thing with your work. Mm-hmm. But I did, you know, kind of grow up right down the road off of uh, State Route 48 from downtown Dayton. And it's a place that I, I think about often and I, I know has greatly shaped how I look at experience and kind of filter every other experience of place and just generally a lot of experience. And I went to undergraduate school at uh, Wright State University, which is the zip code is Dayton, but it's more like Fairborn, which is a neighboring community right near the Air Force Base, Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Well, again, it's interesting to hear you talk about that a little bit just because I've been looking over your works and thinking about text and titles and and just to kind of think about it relative to, you know, your creative side as, as a kid. I mean, was that something that you're always into? I'm, I'm curious, especially to like where if, if uh, music was something that's in there, too, because obviously that's something that you're exploring now. And I just didn't know if you were kind of like a, a go between of all these different things, you know. I grew up in a in a household with a, a an artist, not someone who made a career out of it per se. But um, my father has an MFA in painting from Arizona State University and a BFA in painting from WashU in St. Louis. And so I grew up surrounded by his work and witnessed him working. But music was the thing that my brothers and I gravitated towards. So this would have been like late 80s, early 90s. And um, a lot of the things that were on the radio then are kind of embarrassing to think about now. But, you know, like (laughs) hair metal was was the thing that I was kind of indoctrinated into. But growing up, the thing that really grabbed me was kind of the urgency of, you know, punk rock and, you know, really being completely blown away by Nirvana as like a very little kid. But music was the thing that I, I really thought I would pursue uh, coming out of my teenage years into my undergraduate career. And it actually was getting serious at Wright State that gave me the kind of permission to shelve that for a long time. But the I, the kind of process of home recording and putting together little tape cases and like CD covers, I, I remember doing that as as like a 10 year old. Like I had a, a little Sears boombox and I remember just recording whatever I was doing. And I don't think I ever listened back to it because that would probably be painfully embarrassing. But it was like a a way to think about, you know, uh, the package of the CD. I remember being attracted to record covers and things like that, buying things that are probably really terrible, something like Dangerous Toys, if you remember (laughs) that, man, because the album art was cool. So yeah, to kind of like the long way around to your question, I was both surrounded by visual art. And that, that was something that seemed like a a supported and allowable path, but I was also encouraged with music. And I, you know, I spent many years playing in bands and putting myself on tour with those bands and traveling around up until the point where I realized producing prints and sending those out is far less backbreaking and heartbreaking and uh, made a lot more sense. Yeah. I feel like also relying on other people has to kind of get a little old after a while. (laughs) 
Yeah, and my my brother Justin, who I was in a band with for a long time, was was very great. And hopefully he never listens to this. But ultimately, you rely on three or four other people, and it, it just becomes hard. And that negotiation, as a young person, is hard. And you know, you typically start bands. Uh, at least I did with people I was close to, and sometimes that friction of disappointment or lack of you know reciprocation for the work becomes you know an interpersonal thing which was really hard as you know like a 20 year old and really unappealing once I figured out you know like visual art had a community that was really supportive and I could do my thing and get rewarded for it maybe I'm selfish but that was that was far more appealing at the time and what did you lean towards in terms of the things that you like to study? Were you kind of a painter then and then also a printmaker? Because I'm especially curious if there's like a a similarity in terms of the process. You know, I th- as someone that has to edit audio, mm-hmm. you know, I start thinking about the process of doing that or kind of organizing kind of all these different elements. And I start thinking about it related to some of your prints that incorporate you know, all these different maybe collage pieces or different print mm-hmm. techniques. And, you know, they're kind of very fluid and different ways that you might approach that. So I'm curious, again, where that all started, if it was something that you maybe started out thinking, I want to be a a painter and then switched over, or was it something that just kind of came when you started exploring those classes? So you kind of already got the thesis of a bit of the work that we're probably going to end up talking about, but there is a, a very distinct structural similarity in my view of kind of the process of home recording and private pressing of your own records and tapes and that distribution channel that lays over very well to the kind of printmaking publication thing that all of us printmakers do, making multiples from uh, these like discrete layers of information. Tracking, you know, is the same thing as layering, but kind of the origin of that is what you're asking about. So as I started school uh, as a 18 year old, I had a a two year scholarship to Sinclair Community College, which I will say is a, a really great two year institution in downtown Dayton. And it was they told me a lot about, you know, what I didn't want to do with my life, I guess. I started off in graphic design, or they called it visual communications. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of got all these tools for producing graphics and things, but I, I just didn't like the coursework. And I found myself skipping school more than going to school. And I made the decision then after two years when that free tuition ran out, to move over to Wright State University, which was a four-year or is a four-year university, and a larger art department. And they, at the time, they didn't have a graphic design curriculum, and so I was like, "Oh, I guess I'll just switch over to visual art." To me, it was kind of a crossroads between choosing that or choosing creative writing, and probably indicated by the work I make that was like a fifty-fifty split decision. And I think I leaned towards the visual art department because it seemed more familiar because I had a father who was a painter and I kind of witnessed that. And so I really did. You got it right. Like go in there with the idea that I'd start painting. And then, you know, I kind of was like, oh, well, my dad has an MFA and he wanted to teach college that, you know, just in the abstract, that seemed like a pathway because I I was just really interested in the band thing. And I thought this would be what I would do to kind of, you know, please everybody and kind of get an education. And I really hated, <laughs> I hated those first couple painting classes. I see the value in them greatly now after graduate school and after being out. Everything I know um, about perception and color, I learned through that process of learning to see as a painter. 
mm-hmm. but I never, I never appreciated it at the time. I just dragged my feet. I was a terrible student in those classes. But I ended up taking a drawing class with an artist, John Swindler, who now teaches at the University of Georgia. And he kind of recruited me, like strong-armed me into a summer printmaking course and kind of under the guise of like, you seem smart, you're reading books, we're talking about music. There's this thing downstairs that probably relates more to your interests because, you know, you might see stuff that looks more like the, you know, the band art you like and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I enrolled in a summer class and it was, you know, it was the thing that charted a path for me. It completely changed me from a really like half-assed student into someone who wanted to do something more than anything previously. So I found initially relief printmaking and then screen printing and then lithography and etching. And with each successive kind of course and tool, kind of like my mentality shifted and I actually became a student that was like really invested. All of my extra time was started to be spent in the studios and all my friends became the kind of printmaking people there. And there was a lot of overlap with the sculpture department because it was kind of like another ragtag group of people. But the idea of playing music and those kind of relationships has kind of sat in the background for a long time. And I've been making home recordings ever, you know, all through undergrad, all through grad school and after, just never really identifying that as part of my like capital A art practice. Mm-hmm. Up until this last year, I was given a a course release to put together a show that was I knew was going to be at the Wright State University Alumni Gallery back in Dayton. And it occurred to me that the history of lo-fi home recording in Dayton is pretty profound, guided by voices and the breeders, uh, for example, like bands that kind of came out of the area and guided by voices specifically the all of those early records were self-released. Private press publications, runs of 500, covers designed by the, the, the musicians. And I started thinking about that practice of kind of dwelling in a basement, making these layered compositions. It seemed exactly like what I do as a visual artist. And it kind of gave me a kind of a collective clarity to kind of see that practice I had all along of making kind of musical compositions or songs within a very kind of tried and true structure related so nicely to the kind of way I constructed images kind of in a formalist manner, like a strict set of rules, strict set of limitations, and a very kind of pronounced material quality, like all that related exactly to me in my mind to the home recording processes I was doing. And so the kind of goal became to set up a an installation of works, one of which you just posted online, that related to that process of home recording and printmaking and looking at those kind of structural overlaps and those material similarities. And I kind of gave myself the task of trying to write a little essay about it. And not just about the kind of visual relationships or structure, but also the kind of ethic of it, the kind of democratic nature of giving someone a toolkit that's really accessible and cheap, like home recording with a four track on tape. And then, you know, the ability to create copies is a printmaking thing. And I don't know, it just all kind of gelled together in this last year. It's interesting to think about how these uh, things converge or something, something will strike you as maybe relevant, but it doesn't become relevant until 10 years later or 20 years later, or, you know, maybe sometime it happens sooner. 
Yeah, absolutely. And like, there's, there's kind of a thing about it too, I guess I, I recognize in myself, like a good example would be this, like there's something about, you know, like creating works that are just slightly clumsy that like they're controlled, but they have kind of a, I don't know, like a warts and all sort of feel to them that I just embraced visually long before I understood that's exactly what I was doing by recording music and probably had been doing that before I was making images. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, yeah, it's like circular, but also it's kind of been there the whole time. You know, it's, I don't feel like I returned to it. I never left it. I just didn't recognize it because it was so, I was so close to it. And then also kind of thinking about the idea of like, what is your public practice? What is your work? Kind of like your work when people conjure up an image of it based on your name or hearing you. And then what, what are you actually making that like no one else sees? or hears, and then trying to kind of expose both of those things. I felt like it was a little bit um, uh, more intimate than I, I perhaps have been before, and that sounds funny, but I think a lot about the, the kind of duality of that, like what we do and what we present versus you know what we choose to omit. And I, I do get a lot of inspiration from, you know, again, the, the kind of people from my hometown, you know, like Bob Pollard releases everything he records <laughs> for better or worse, you know, and sometimes for worse. But I just like the idea of making the whole the whole catalog, as it were, kind of accessible. I think that's helpful. It kind of gives greater context and it may be interesting. Well, one thing that I wanted to ask, and again, hopefully this might be helpful to maybe some younger artists that might be listening to this or checking this out, you know, is the evolution of especially the visual components of your work. Because if you, yeah. again, go check out uh, nicksatnover.com, you'll see there's there's tons of work. And as you kind of go back, there's at the start of everything, there's a little bit more representation, recognizable elements. Mm-hmm. So to kind of think about that as it kind of approaches more of these really formal explorations of text and, you know, fields of color or blocks of color, was there anything that like specifically led you to that point? Cause, cause to me, when I look at it, you know, as somebody, as an outsider, I start thinking it as like a vehicle for you to kind of play around with text and uh, lyrics. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, there's even kind of like a resemblance of like signage mm-hmm. and place in, in your work. And, you know, certainly as somebody that thinks about that stuff and travels, you know, that's something that, that, I don't know, may or may not be relevant there, but I'm especially just curious if you could talk a little bit about that that transition between going from something that's more slightly recognizable to being something that might be all, you know, visual slash text based. Yeah, I mean, you you you're very perceptive, so I think you <laughs> uh, get in my brain a little bit, and maybe it's because we've we've thought about similar things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so the kind of evolution was in graduate school as I I moved away and it sounds so pitiful, but like I moved four and a half hours west of where I grew up. All the way four and a half hours. Four and a half hours. And it it did kind of shake my world up a little bit because it was a much different place. It was kind of a small insular community that didn't really have like an urban center. It was also a place kind of built around thriving industry as opposed to a you know dying industry the insurance uh, state farm in bloomington versus you know general motors or national cash register in dayton and so i was i was just totally thinking about place and kind of that kind of the romance and the reverie of hometown and what it meant to be kind of reflecting it and critiquing it and representing it because you can never really like totally give someone the same you know experience as being there 
Um, and then thinking about kind of the way we started, like it shaped how I view everything. So my experience of it is completely specific and subjective. And so I, I kind of gave myself the mission in graduate school of making images of a place that I was familiar with, but trying to think about and present all the ways it could be kind of alien or distanced or, you know, kind of out an outsider's perspective. Mm -hmm. So the representation was really trying to present like impossible views or combinations, kind of a perspectival shift or like a cubist sensibility of the top of the table and the side at the same time, just things that were kind of impossible and negotiating that idea of like two things at once or a strategy of like ambivalent kind of thought. And, and that has been kind of a through line for me. But I did kind of exhaust myself thinking like, oh, well, if I want to make a picture about place and experience, I have to have a reference for it that's pictorial. I just gained a lot of confidence over the years saying drawing is not super important to me. What is, is the writing and kind of thought end of it, the kind of internal part of it. And that coincided nicely with a shift to thinking about other forms of contrast and duality and other strategies of making images that look fairly ambivalent. And so the signage is absolutely right in that typically when you see signs in the landscape, they are directive or didactic. They're things that tell you information that's helpful to navigate or to place. And I kind of had the idea, well, what if these things look sort of like signs, but they function like poems? And they really used ambiguity to suggest a lot or evoke something. Typically something that was kind of uh, had some elements of reverie, but also some elements of melancholy. And the kind of development towards a more text practice was really like that was the appropriate thing to do. And also not being tied to thinking about how to draw a place every time and just feeling like anyways, that was a rather limiting way to go about it. The other thing that happened, I think the last time we talked at length was I was gearing up for a residency period at the Kala Artist Institute outside of Berkeley, California. And I had just started a body of work that was really the transition to something more text and kind of formal, formally based flat planes of color, mm -hmm. just more compositionally rich and, and less representational. And the kind of task of that residency was to walk around, absorb the landscape, and try to reflect something that felt like that place, but was built out of kind of the internal kind of monologue or thoughts I had, a little like poems or notes or observations that I made while moving through that space. And that was then kind of the, the model from, that I moved forward with. While it was incredibly fruitful to kind of make that switch and to just give myself permission to make an image of text <laughs> as opposed to an image that looked like a picture of a thing. Mm -hmm. And it, it was really the catalyst for, you know, again, since last time we talked, getting more residencies, getting a lot more attention for the work that I make, getting several jobs, uh, now one where I'm tenured at. All of it was kind of predicated upon that switch to thinking more about text as the forefront of it. And it, it felt like a more honest thing to do because... I was never really interested in drawing. I had that kind of split decision of going into creative writing or visual arts, and it it always felt clunky, uh, like that choice. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like I was finally being honest with you know the choice of what pictures I wanted to make. Yeah, and it's kind of continued in a way where 
that kind of strategy evolves, like rules get set. So for a long time, I only made marks that I could cut, either like physically cut into a piece of wood and print from, cut out of a sheet of paper and push something through. And then it, it also like the initial rule was like no curved lines. And then eventually, you know, curved lines were okay. <laughs> now I'm doing things where like there's fields of texture versus fields of flatness and um, I've been thinking a lot about divided compositions and really just trying to make the left and right or top and bottom drastically different, but feel really related, uh, kind of in theme or, or kind of in an impression. And so, yeah, I kind of find myself like every year, the kind of rule set changes, but the kind of recipe is usually pretty similar and the kind of structure becomes for me, the most kind of important thing that I have simply a set of rules, like I'm going to divide the paper in half and then I'm going to explore what happens on each side. And that guides a lot of the decision making. And I think also the color palette just has opened up because I don't feel indebted to an experience of place. I'm thinking more in recent months about just trying to evoke a lot of difference left to right or top to bottom, just a lot of contrast and pit those things against each other. Well, it's interesting when you're, when you're talking about it, I almost think about it the way that like a band will go in to record an album, you know? Yeah. Like, like they have some particular, you know, focus or like we're going to kind of, a, you know, focus on this kind of sound or these in a similar way, like these types of aesthetics, you know, where it might, you know, be some way to kind of help organize it. Or like you were talking about essentially, you know, playing around balance and some, some works, mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like then kind of mo moving further away from the, I guess, a direct source kind of frees you up to to play around with color. But I'm especially kind of, you know, curious if, if um, you know, there's a design aspect to that or if it's just something that you're, you know, gravitating towards, you know, exploring new different colorful elements. Because, again, just looking over your, your work, there's periods where it seems like there's you know, maybe, you know, less color or more color. Sometimes they have almost, you know, um, like an analogous reading, sometimes they're mm -hmm. kind of all over the place. Um, but is it kind of something that comes down to rules, like you were kind of describing before, or no curved lines, rather? <laughs> you know, yeah. like I'm only going to use uh, cool colors or something. Well, it, it comes down to I think the piece by piece trying to form some relationships, and so there's maybe not a like a overall principle of like this body of work is going to have a muted palette with an analogous color scheme. But within a piece, it might be like the left half is achromatic and the right half is colored. Or it might be I try to develop a, an even mix of neutralized color and high intensity color or try to use it like a complementary color system, you know, to further increase that kind of disparity between the sides, but also kind of acknowledge their intellectual relationship. But I think part of the development of, of kind of more intense color overall comes out of just getting more fluent with some of the, the materials and processes that I use and kind of everything I, I make essentially, at least in printed work, is through a reductive process. And I apologize, it's like talking shop, but... <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's what we want, you know? <laughs> okay, so it's, you know, like you start with one field of color printed over the whole paper and then you remove some elements from that printing area and then you overprint again. So like if you lay down a field of yellow and then you cut away some areas and then you print a red, you're not going to get a red on top of that yellow. You'll get an orange. And so 
initially early on, I had a kind of a very specific strategy for laying color down of going high intensity color, kind of complete achromatic, neutral, mostly white with a little black in it to try to reset the palette, kind of like I'm doing air quotes that you can't see, <laughs> and then doing another layer of high intensity color. And so the early work had kind of a, a system to it that worked to build it and control that, that kind of color distribution. But you know, as I've learned more about how to work reductively and as I've started working in these split compositions where I can, if you can kind of imagine a big printmaking roller that's like, you know, the size of your outstretched arms and on the left side you can have one color and on the right side you can have another and they don't really touch mm -hmm. um, in the composition. Now I can really keep the integrity of some of the color rather than overlaying it and overlaying it and overlaying it. And so there's kind of a, a difference there in that I, I, maybe the compositions are allowing the color to not have to be as densely layered and muddied. But I do, I do try to create some pockets where there's a lot of that like layered mixing and that density, or if you can imagine like four tracks on the recording all turned up the same amount. And then some moments where you only get one of those layers printing and it's really intense and bright. And again, it's just trying to think about the relationships at play and doing my best to try to create a couple different types of color relationships within each image. But I, I honestly don't set out anymore with a, an idea of a palette in mind other than if I, you know, divide it top and bottom, left and right you know, within this moment of making stuff, I can do something really wild on this side and something muted on this side. And that's, that's really the constraint of the tools I have, you know, the, the printmaking process can only roll left and right and top and bottom, right. So I really am limited in a way to splitting color that way across a, a composition. Well, it's interesting because I, you know, think about it related to my own work in terms of the kind of things that I'm interested in. And you realize that artists have all maybe different kind of goals in mind in terms of kind of what they're after. So when I'm listening to hearing you talk about it, it, it really kind of strikes me that, you know, that experimentation, that process is such a huge, you know, part of what you do. And I, I would imagine, again, just allows you to kind of explore when you get in, into these kind of new scenarios. And obviously I know we'll, we'll talk a little bit, you know, about the show that's coming up, mm -hmm. you know, next month, but I'm curious if we could talk a little bit about, maybe a, a series of works that you've done. Again, you've done a number of artist uh, residencies and mm -hmm. visiting artist stints. And so, you know, one of the, one of the bodies of work that kind of stuck out to me was from a couple, a couple of years ago in uh, 2017 mm -hmm. when you're an artist residence at Mass Mocha. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have a, like, again, like a series of these prints, maybe just to kind of, you know, break down, you know, what, what uh, that process may be, might be like when you kind of have these opportunities, you know, are, do you have a set goal in mind or is it like a day by day thing? Maybe it sounds like in terms of how you go and, you know, and approach, you know, kind of what you're doing. Cause obviously I'm assuming that the, you know, the setups might be different. So if you're yeah. without, you know, good wood cutting tools, it's like, okay, I got to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And those are hard to put on a plane and travel with. <laughs> Absolutely. <essentially weapons. laughs> Yeah, so the the Mass Mocha is a really a really great place, and they they are a very generous residency in terms of space, time, and there's funding opportunities, and they feed you a little bit, which is pretty great <laughs> to get a hot lunch every day. They do calls all the time, and they they cycle a lot of people through, so it's definitely something anyone listening to this should apply to. 
and you get access to the entirety of the Mass Mocha Museum for the entirety of your stay. You get like a pass. You can just go in. It's like you're in Disneyland, uh, but for art. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a really interesting kind of town. And my my proposal had a lot to do with you know my history of growing up in a depressed Rust Belt town where the industry had essentially vanished where North Adams, Massachusetts, the industry had vanished, the spark plug and the textile factories, those are now the Mass Mocha campus. Like you as an artist work in the kind of, you know, the the shell of what used to be, you know, a manufacturing area. And you see they have like really carefully preserved and pointed out a lot of that history. And a lot of the artists who go and do projects in their open warehouse sized you know, indoor football stadium spaces are really thinking about that kind of labor and some of the history of the place. So I was really attached to the idea of making work based on that kind of transition of manufacturing to art space and thinking about the labor involved in both. And uh, it's related again to the music thing, but the kind of anonymity of just making work, you know, in a studio versus like being a person on the line, like, I don't know. There, you have to kind of be okay with the idea that you're toiling in obscurity and that the work you make is, you know, maybe going to go somewhere or maybe be consumed or, or not. And kind of I, I set up a routine for myself and I do it during the school year and summer as well when I'm teaching or have time off where uh, I generally juggle two prints at a time because I can kind of do a layer on one and then do a layer on the other while the first one's drying. And so that's kind of a fairly straightforward strategy just based on the constraints of the particular media. But Mass Mocha at the time had a print shop that was within the within an old storefront in the downtown area. And they had essentially like a washout booth for screen printing, an exposure unit, and then a couple tables with hinges. It was very kind of, you know, functional but low tech, especially kind of coming from the institution I'm I'm privileged to work at where we have an entire room of that stuff simply for that one process. And so I, I knew all that and I thought, well, what what is going to be manageable and what is going to essentially travel well and make me most productive? And that was to return to using nothing but uh, essentially cut paper stencils with an open screen. And again, talking shop, but that just means like no images were put on the screens. I was basically making like the equivalent of like a graffiti spray paint, spray paint stencil by hand cutting something and pushing ink through it. Mm-hmm. So all those images were composed out of layers that were kind of built from just these hand cut pieces. And, you know, I had a week there because they have a great program for, I forget how it's labeled, but it, it basically is like if you're a, an academic artist and it feels weird to call myself that, but that's what I am. You know, I'm employed, gainfully employed as an academic. They do these week-long residencies during the semester knowing that you could likely only take a week of time. And that works perfectly because I have twin boys who have just turned six. And I really, I can't, I just, I, my brain and heart and body can't be away from them more than a week. It's just too hard. So it was just like a perfect scenario. But I knew I had a week. And so... On the ground, that kind of meant maybe six full days working and doing a little bit of like research and development before I started making any work. So I got there and I 
did all the walking, kind of looking at everything, did a little photo documentation, which I, I did only because I knew I'd come back and have to show evidence of my process to my uh, administration. <laughs> and uh, it, I mean, it's been helpful. It's something I maybe do a little more now. But um, yeah, I just kind of set up the process of I'd come in at like 9 a.m. after a walk and work till lunch and just try to complete two prints a day, which in screen printing is totally manageable. And then on my last day, I, I cajoled my fellow residents into making a collaborative zine, which is something that I was really into in 2017. I was doing one per week as kind of like a training exercise for image making. And so, yeah, within a week, it felt really productive. But I, I really had to limit every variable down to like, I can only make this one type of mark with this one type of material. And once you start thinking in a way of reducing the means, you start making more sophisticated choices if you want to make complex works. So, you know, suddenly I was making like blended like layers on the screen that had, you know, like eight to 10 colors on them just to try to get more color introduced into the print and less layers. And that kind of efficiency, again, called back to me, like what you do when you have something like a four track machine or a Xerox machine, you want to make a book, you have such limited means, you have to get really, you know, kind of sneaky if you want to do more with less. And I think that way of thinking is really powerful and helpful. And it, and it, at least for me, makes me make better decisions. I have to be thoughtful, even though I'm working quickly. And is that something different too, where, you know, some of your work are, are strict in terms of media. So you might have a you know, pieces that are pure lithographs versus ones where they kind of incorporate a variety of different materials and more collaged elements, it sounds like. Is that something where you're going to be printing like multiples when you're doing, you know, just tradition, more traditional printmaking methods and then they're more singular when they're kind of incorporating a variety of different materials that you're using or processes? Yeah, yeah, you got it right. So I have um, these kind of modular installations that I did kind of out an, uh, an exercise and an opportunity to show at a gallery in Finley, Ohio called the Neon Heater, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah, yeah. It's a artist-run space. Friend Ian Breidenbach was the kind of originator of it. I think he's handed over the, the reins of it. But I had it in my mind to create, you know, like a, a modular installation out of a repeated pair of words, work and worry. And, you know, my kind of goal was I'm going to cut one wood block and I will do you know, like a set of, you know, two layers of printing, but I want to try to make it as, you know, overwhelmingly colorful as I can, which meant I never printed it the same way twice, and then ultimately cut it up and installed it directly on the wall. And so that kind of led to this, just out of trimming things down and keeping everything, because I'm a, a bit of a hermit in the studio, I ended up with these bags of little strips where I trimmed out these giant work and worry blocks. And that started kind of a body of collage based works, which were the kind of excess and waste of the printed works. And, you know, printmaking people are, are so, you know, procedure oriented and persnickety and we're, you know, we're clever in a lot of ways, I think. So, you know, you make a print and you print it a little larger than you need it to be so that when you tear it down, you don't have any awkward spaces on the edge. And, but then you have these like little strips that you can't do anything with that are actually kind of beautiful or and potentially useful. And so I wanted to be able to utilize this everything in my practice more kind of holistically. So if I was going to 
make a modular installation out of a bunch of blocks and I had all these strips, I, I kind of told myself I need to use the strips somehow. And then that, you know, led to making more collaged works. And uh, maybe the ones you're thinking about are the, the four track, four songs works, which were related to that exhibition at, at, back in Dayton in last summer. And it was just the most immediate way to try to make compositions in a singular manner that were built out of component pieces. And the whole kind of conceit of doing that was that each work had the kind of same limitations and elements and could only extend so far and have be composed of these different elements, you know, like a, a record collage pieces, a Xerox and a wood wood plate that was printed as a background and they would each have that same kind of structure and that would be that but I, I, I'm not like a strict purist in terms of like if you're going to make a lithograph it has to always be litho printed from stone and done a certain way but I do find it is very handy at least in my productivity if I'm going to kind of set up a stone because I want to have copies of something because I do I, I really do find value in having multiples if I carry it through to the end, it, it doesn't need to become multimedia. And when I was in graduate school, I was pairing different things like half of an image was a scuffed up piece of wood that was printed with an image on it. And then the other half was lithographically printed. And thinking about the disparity in fidelity of those images or those processes. But I, I'm not I'm not really thinking about that too much at the moment. It's kind of what is the most appropriate thing for the work at the time, you know, to speak to my own interests, I, I find the the way that the lithographic process delivers color to be the absolutely most satisfying mm -hmm. <laughs> and intense. And it has also built in a really great registration system. So I can print 10 layers onto a single print and nothing kind of gets out of whack. It's just it expedites things. It lets me be a little bit more ambitious in terms of amount of printing and not worrying about things falling away or kind of exploding. Well, it seems to me like you can kind of keep building new techniques, new processes. You know, you have something maybe that you're starting, especially, you know, it sounds like you must have bags of tatters <laughs> of old prints kind of collecting around the studio. So, you know, if you don't know what you're really interested in working on, it's just a matter of, you know, just starting to cutting things up and seeing what they look like. And that might feed, you know, something else. Yeah. I'm especially, you know, curious now, you know, as we kind of, you know, looked at a, a couple of different kind of ways of working and, you know, we've alluded to this a little bit, what's going on with uh, the, the show at Raqqa again, just to remind everybody, you were our selected uh, solo artist winner for the 2018 studio break uh, pro competition, Brian Frink, you know, picked your work to be at uh, Raqqa Gallery, which is up in, you know, Mankato, a, a space that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. What are you kind of incorporating there uh, that's new with your four-track recording? Again, it sounds like you're going really old school and <laughs> <laughs> digging into some old old methodologies, I guess, to explore some new things. Yeah, yeah, and that's a good way to put it. I mean, on, on one hand, uh, if you're making prints from a rock, that's about as old school as making a recording with uh, magnetic tape. <laughs> yeah. like, those technologies are kind of about as uh, contemporary to one another as they can be. So the show at Raqqa is called Time is a Distance. And this is, I kind of wrote a little statement both for Brian and for a, another uh, show, because ultimately this thing 
I found out we'll get to travel after Raqqa, which is really awesome. You know, I've really been kind of figuring out over the last couple of years, like having children has been a really kind of weird way to mark time. Like I see how that changes my perception of it. And so I've a lot of the writing and kind of observations I've been making, I kind of as I surround myself with my kids and the things in their house and we're doing those activities is just like how strangely long and short everything feels just as a concept like and that's not really novel I'm I'm by no means the first person will tell you that because you know when you have kids the first thing people tell you is like pay attention because it goes by fast but at the same time like when you have kids every day feels like a year because there's so many little things that happen and you know ups and downs and you know obviously more good than bad but it is it is a lot day to day. And anyone who, you know, comes to our house and hangs out, they're like, wow, you guys are busy all the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the kind of sensation I have is that, you know, time is this really malleable thing. And like, you look at it one way, and it's one thing and fast and crazy. And on the other way, it's like slow and tedious. And so the work is kind of the text that's being involved in the work is kind of returned from a signage sort of visual signifier to more of a handwritten one, which is a return to me for to like early work in undergrad is to kind of re-involve my hand rather than a cut mark saying something. Mm-hmm. And so it's being built with that kind of in mind. The text is reflective of that. And the visual components, the kind of compositional ones, are still situated in this kind of either or left or right top or bottom that kind of flipping back and forth and to me that's an analog to this kind of concept that it's fast and short you know brief and quick and i'm trying to just kind of nestle this this concept in a few visual kind of analogs there's that little alcove space and i i've seen it through pictures and i kind of told brian i was interested in doing something with it and i think what i'm going to end up doing is sending a small cassette player, and hopefully, I need to clear this with them, can be just sat in there and maybe put behind something. And that's going to either have a, a tape that's designed to loop specific kind of subtle composition, or it would be designed to be played kind of in its entirety, one direction, and then flipped over, and then it would be played as a backwards composition, which naturally happens when you record on a four-track machine. It doesn't, you know, it, it uses the the first two tracks are the front playing tracks and the if you were to uh, record on tracks three and four it is actually the the two tracks that would be playing front ways on the back side of the tape and so if you just record on all four and then you play it on a normal cassette player you get a frontwards composition and then you flip it over and you get a backwards composition um so i'm, I'm thinking that kind of is a good or kind of an audio audio analog to this kind of same but different and simultaneously this and that kind of ambivalent thing that the whole the whole show and really my whole practice is really predicated upon. Well, it's interesting because it makes me think too how much like a, a space can kind of affect your work or mm-hmm. when you get up there, it's a really interesting space. You know, it has kind of like a age to it and a history behind it. Um, yeah, And even just kind of some of the walls, because some of the walls are unfinished as opposed to the ones that are really clean and tidy. So you have kind of, you know, the history of brick. I start thinking about, you know, hearing sound while maybe looking at these, allowing people to kind mm-hmm. of like almost kind of create their own poetry for it or kind of try to imagine themselves in, in the work or try to figure out a way in. 
Yeah. So I would imagine that that atmosphere and all those kind of things kind of build into each other when, when somebody's looking at this. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what type of things people talk to you about at, at, a, at a show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh man, the funniest thing. So, uh, when I, when I had this exhibition back in Ohio in June for the four track, four songs, it was really deliberately set up as, you know, four sort of installations that just went from large to small component pieces. You know, there's kind of like a wallpaper I printed and then hung, uh, the work on top of it within the frame of the work were those four components and the, the, even the lathe cut vinyl record, and then within the space, I was playing the record on a loop. So I kept having to move over and, and put it back on. And I made little pamphlet essays uh, kind of talking about the this whole thing, you know, because I, I wanted to give myself the challenge of, of trying to express it in writing and kind of unpack the the lineage and the kind of site specificity of like being in a place that it was kind of known at one point for being this mecca of home recorded music and private press publication and um, also invention and sort of technology that has now been outdated. <laughs> I was kind of sitting there talking with a guy and he's like, man, this sounds like too much work for a Friday night. <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, but on the other hand, you know, you're in here and the things I would hope are like kind of visually seductive and you know, I think we're trained to see like gold records on a wall and that's kind of charming. And, you know, I was trying to create these kind of reference or entry points that were, you know, you can see the structure and you can kind of meditate on the repetition and the intervals and the the reflective nature of the things. And, and all that, I mean, visually, all that's in there. And so some people get that the things feel like feel kind of oppositional or they feel like tightly controlled. Some people will tell me like, that's a that's a nice phrase or a poem. And I think they, they understand that it has a twinge of that contrast in it or the kind of dual meaning or the, the kind of evocation of something that isn't there. And some people like you come to and they say, these things look like signs, but they're kind of poetic and that's the hope. But, you know, to like kind of an untrained audience, I, I say that I don't mean it in a derogatory way, just people who didn't, you know, go through grad critique. <laughs> <laughs> it you know they they gravitate towards the kind of sensual qualities of art and that's you know really important too like that the work captures someone it kind of with their eyes and their ears and they want to look at it and think about it um and so some people just comment on that and you know i'm i'm on board to to have people seduced visually if that happens i mean i think that at least is a good step towards a conversation and you know we always kind of think about the the gap between what we what we want the work to be and what we think it's about and what most everyone might kind of get from it. And I think maybe a good strategy or something I try to be mindful of is that uh, if it is, you know, kind of seductive visually, if there's kind of things that people can sit with and, and kind of look at a little bit longer rather than just getting it immediately, then uh, at least we're in the same mode of thinking, because I, I kind of am deliberate and I sit down and I, I, I spend a lot of time in my studio sitting just kind of in, in thought. And my hope is that visually work can do that too. It can kind of instigate that kind of presence of mine. And I, I think more often than not, people will tell me that, oh, I'm going to think about that a little longer. And that's great. Um, even if 
they're not, oh, I get a sense of the Rust Belt aesthetic and the blue collar nature you mm-hmm. are kind of evoking. But, you know, that's it's kind of a tall order, right? I think all of us have, you know, a gap between what we what we really are putting in there and what's being received. And, you know, we're trying to just narrow the gap as much as we can. Yeah. And obviously for me, one of the things that's interesting, you know, in talking to artists is that I'm trying to visit their world for a little bit, you know, to kind of make my world a little bit fuller. So that's really all you can ask viewers to do, I think, you know, is to kind of enjoy that space and try to dwell in it for a little bit. Yeah. So to to describe some of these works a little bit too, you recorded music for it when it talks about, you know, that, that essentially you have this vinyl record. So, I mean, you cut vinyl records of, of the stuff that you're recorded on four track. Is that correct? Yeah. So I very purposely set out to <laughs> try to replicate what I do visually in an audio uh, kind of scenario. So I had, you know, kind of like a, a four part composition you know, four different parts played on four different instruments. So guitar, drums, bass guitar, and then kind of synthesizer that was more atmospheric. And the way those recordings unfolded was that the first iteration of it, part one is a verse, part two is a chorus, part three is a bridge, and part four is the outro, which is a standard kind of setup for a pop song, verse, chorus, verse, bridge, outro, or some variation of that, right? Sometimes you get several choruses and then you know we think of songs as being less traditional formats when they are linear or they go like a b c d e f and then end you know that's like a prog rock thing Mm -hmm. but you know most pop songs are built out of verse chorus verse and most punk rock songs are the exact same way and you even get rid of things like the solo and the bridges because that's like too too much of a flourish so i set out to make an audio composition or a set of them where i had you know, four parts, so like A, B, C, D. And the first iteration of the recording, A is the verse, B is the chorus, C is the bridge, D is the outro. And then the next version, song two, they slide up in order. So then uh, B is the verse, C is the chorus, and so on and so on. And so what happens is you hear the parts because of the amount of times they repeat, kind of based on that structure. The parts kind of gain different uh, prominence and different kind of contextual power. They, when the chorus becomes a verse, it changes. And certainly when the bridge, which is only meant to be done once, becomes the most repeated part as the verse or the chorus, you know, it really changes character through that repetition and that kind of move. And people kind of got that sense hearing it after like a minute into the second composition. They go, oh, I'm, I'm, I see things have moved around. And that's essentially all that was happening in the visual components was that they were moving the pieces around to make different arrangements out of the same elements and trying to kind of slot things in different ways and just kind of keep reflecting that number four or the the number of elements. And so I I, I guess if I was to describe what those sound like, and I'm, I'm still trying to wrestle with the idea of publishing those in a way that people can listen to them or trying to keep them relegated to the small edition I have on on vinyl that you you could have as an actual object but they they kind of sound slow like maybe a good touch point would be the band low it, you know if you kind of think of like very slow but driving and atmospheric kind of indie rock but there's no vocals mm-hmm. um, but I, I keep I keep toying with this idea of how to kind of publish it online because I I think for me the important part was 
it being attached and kind of made both the visual and audio thing and kind of an experiential thing. And well, and, and you just kind of alluded to it. So how many, how many pressings did you, did you make of this? Did you have like a, a couple sets of this or is it essentially they're all kind of unique for the, I guess the different tracks? So I made, I guess you would call it an addition. I had 10 cut. So like a lathe cut record is different than a traditionally produced record in that typically you send your audio to the mastering company. They create a lacquered impression, like a positive of what the record sound is. And then they press that positive lacquer into the vinyl, giving all the divots and things that are the sound. So also, it's a printmaking process, which is kind of interesting. Sure. <laughs> uh, but the lathe cut, they play it and they have a scribing machine that cuts it in real time. So this fellow, Ron, up at Little Elephant Lathe Cuts, and I think it's in Toledo, Ohio, I had to sit there and listen to my thing. Well, he sent me 11, so 11 times. <laughs> <sitting> <laughs> and, it. and so four of them got kind of encased in the frames with the work as like a collage element. And then I had, you know, kind of like six extra ones. And I've created like a smaller edition that's just like a, a, a thing you could have as a record rather than the piece with the collage. Um, and I was kind of set on the idea that the ones that are framed are are now an element that's like inextricably linked to that. Because that's the kind of the curious thing. Once you have something that feels object-like, that feels like a consumer object rather than an art object, like, you know, how how do we deal with it? Do we want to sell it? You know, you certainly want people to have it. I think records are meant to be given away, but I'm really intrigued kind of partially by, again, the kind of history of private press recordings of like things people made to have, but not really share. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, it, it's something I'm not like actively trying to give away, but I, I have gifted some to a couple people who are really important. And um, I've, I did end up selling a few as well, but I, I, I'm hanging on to the last couple ones because they're, they're just aesthetically beautiful objects. And um, I had them cut on the, the top side and the back side was uncut, so it was flat. So I actually screen printed some imagery on the back of different grain patterns from really, really blown up uh, Xerox images. So, I mean, they are essentially printed and kind of printed objects that in themselves are kind of like a matrix, like a print, because it's cut the same way like a block would be cut to be printed. Just super nerdy. I'm saying it. And sure. I realize it's so nerdy. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because then you have the the ones that are kind of acting as an aesthetic device um, mm -hmm. that kind of links up with what you're doing, and then you have the ones that are functional. So yeah. it's kind of an interesting uh, way to work through it. And again, I was curious about that because as you're looking at them, you know, it's interesting to see that like screen printed process for the records that are actually included on the other kind of collage piece to kind of see the mm -hmm. way that they interact and. You know, again, it just has an interesting aesthetic. I should be clear, like the, the work I'm making for Raka is kind of strictly straight up print. It's a, a newer set of things, but the audio component will be new and composed for that. But these these kind of four track works, I really I viewed as like a, a research based endeavor. And it really helped me clarify a lot of the things that I was doing and um, wanting to kind of really fold into my practice and it and it felt like a a return to a lot of ways of thinking and being and making that you know like all the way from 10 years old and on where again what I did privately designing these things that no one ever heard but then kind of integrating it into familiar 
forms that I was kind of already making as a visual artist. I mean, if it was, is in one way it was trying to acknowledge like an entire history as I was returning to a place that, you know, made me and educated me. And then also thinking about the kind of greater history of that place and then a history of my own practice. And that sounds really pretentious because I'm not that old, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the way I'm moving forward, I'm just far more comfortable thinking of sound as a really viable component of what I'm, I'm doing and how it informs the work I'm making. And, and you know, it's really been there anyways, because I can think back to like 2013, making kind of a small run of prints that were, they didn't quite categorically fit into images of space and place, which was really how I was kind of umbrella defining what I did. And so those works were more just kind of observations like of just, you know, around, not of anything. And those became lyrics for unwritten songs was the way I titled that. And so I think I've been kind of returning to that in, in a more comfortable way lately. Remind us uh, the details of this exhibition when it's opening up. Yeah, so it will be April 18th as the opening, and I'm going to travel there, which is exciting because I think I had a show in Mankato that was a collaborative show with John Swindler back in 2014 at the 410 Gallery, and I haven't been back since, and um, I'm just really looking forward to it and engaging with the community there because uh, I've met Brian once in person, and my sense is it's a really robust community. And it seems like a really beautiful and unique space to show the work. And so a new set of lithographic images and some new audio recording. Right on, right on. And I'm assuming there's also, if you don't know this already, Brian has uh, built a pizza oven uh, outside of his uh, <laughs> his live slash workspace and play space. Uh, so I'm assuming this will be a, a pretty cool event to go check out. Yeah. And before we wrap up again, just remind everybody, where, where else can they find out about your work? Obviously, we've got nicksatnor.com, so that everybody should go there to check out work. But just uh, give us your details on uh, other places that you're at, social media-wise. Yeah, so I, I keep <laughs> I keep an embarrassing amount of Instagram accounts just I'm responsible for because of my job. But just at Nick Satnover, and the last name is spelled like it sounds, Satinover. So at Nick Satinover. I also run a, a very kind of insider baseball version of printmaking sort of Instagram as well. If you are interested in how colors blend across rollers and go on things, that's at Blend Hits, which is a reference to the Fugazi album and Hits. Um, and as kind of a, a greater plug, I, uh, if, if I'm allowed, I've been deeply involved in a collaborative art practice uh, with Tampa, Florida artist, Rye McCullough, who you should check out, uh, your listeners should check out. And uh, it's called Small Bars, and it kind of presents itself as a band entity, but it's really a conceptual print publishing and performance and object ephemera making enterprise. And we have a show that will be opening uh, kind of a show slash event that will be taking place at the Open Room in Salt Lake City uh, in March and so I, I kind of keep active with those things. And that's on Instagram at small bars, small bars with the underscores in between them. And then if you're so inclined, you want to see what my students are up to, uh, MTSU printmakers on Instagram. Right on. Well, again, it's been fun catching up and, and hearing about some of these new projects. Again, it's uh, yeah interesting to think about how all those things cycle back around. So 
to think about music especially was was really interesting related to the printmaking process so yeah but thanks so much for participating i really appreciate it absolutely thank you dave it's always a a pleasure and uh you know i look forward to speaking with you in four more years Thanks once again to Nick for joining me. Be sure and check out more of his work at nicksatinover.com and follow him on Instagram at nicksatinover. His new exhibition, Time is a Distance, opens up at Rocka Gallery up in Mankato, Minnesota, run by Brian Frank. It's a wonderful space, so if you live in the nearby area up there, maybe Minneapolis, be sure and check out the exhibition. Nick also has a collaborative show opening up March 21st in Salt Lake City at the Open Room. It's a collaborative exhibition with Ryan McCullough called Small Bars Listening Party, so be sure and check that out if you're in Salt Lake City. If you're interested in checking out four songs, four tracks, we'll play that right after all the announcements. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit studiobreak.com and check out some of the archived episodes like our recent interview with painter Mitchell Johnson. All of our posts have images of artists' artwork as well as links to their websites. You can, of course, subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, so be sure and do that. And, of course, if you would be so kind or if you know anybody that might like this podcast, please help spread the word or leave a positive rating. It always earns you some karma points for the studio. If you want even more Studio Break or you don't want to miss something, be sure and like our Facebook page. You can also find us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. And it's always great to hear from those that like this podcast. So if you enjoy it, please give us a shout out there. Say hello. If you're at all curious what I make, you can check out my work at davidlinway.com. There's plenty of paintings up there to peruse. You can also follow me on Twitter at davidlinway and on Instagram at David Linaway. So check me out there. Say hello. Next week, we've got Alice Stone Collins coming on the podcast. So be sure and check that out. Once again, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.
Thank you. 